This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5 this morning. You're going to stay in with us, Luke chapter 5. And I just want to say on the behalf of Dale Satriano, who's not here this morning, thank you for everyone who came to the workday uh, yesterday. You did a fantastic job. So thank you for your time. Many of you, many, many hours putting in the labor um, outside and inside, and the results are visible, and we're just really grateful for your time. That's a blessing to take ownership of the facility the Lord has blessed us with, and it was encouragement and an encouragement to see you all out there yesterday. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles located on the side here, and you'll find Luke 5 on page 808 in those Bibles. I'm going to begin by reading our passage, and then we'll pray. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little further from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John and the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would reveal yourself to us. We thank you for this passage that gives us a glimpse of what happens when you show yourself to your people. We are undone. We are exposed in our own sin as we view you in all of your splendor and holiness. Lord, we pray we would have eyes to see you this morning. And Lord, that we would also see that not only does your holiness convict us and lay us bare, it also beckons us to come, to not be afraid, to follow you in faith, to trust your atoning work on our behalf and to believe your word that you would use even sinners such as are gathered in this room to accomplish your purposes. Lord, would you show us 
the miracle that that really is in our own lives. We ask for your help as we look at this passage together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's Luke's purpose for writing this gospel. For Theophilus and this wider Christian, likely Gentile audience to have these wonderful, powerful eyewitness accounts of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Luke is a careful historian. He's a medical doctor, not given to exaggeration or kind of vague notions of truth. He wants us to see Jesus. So he spent the first four chapters introducing him to us. This is who Jesus is. Now in chapter 5, he's going to shift his focus toward discipleship. Jesus is gathering disciples now, learners, committed followers. And as the disciples see Jesus, they are changed forever. They see Jesus, particularly here in chapter 5, in all of his holiness. If you look at chapter 5 as a whole, you kind of see that theme. So, so here we're going to see Jesus, his holiness, exposing ourselves and our sin. In the next few verses, verses 12 to 16, we see the account of the leper that's healed in the way that Jesus cleanses us before God. In the next verses, 17 to 26, we're going to see Jesus is authorized to forgive sins. And then finally, in verses 27 to 32, Jesus brings sinners to repentance. Even tax collectors sit at His table. But nowhere will we find that Jesus leaves people the way that they were when He met them, the same, unaffected. Some may be hardened in their unbelief, but for those that will have Him, they are transformed and then commissioned, sent out, saved and sent. So the center of discipleship is seeing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. And that requires that He make Himself known. And that's exactly what He does in this passage before us. And that's my prayer for us this morning. That Jesus would just make Himself known as He is. That we would truly see the One who is responsible for creating and sustaining the universe. One author puts it this way, He defines reality and gives it form every second. Fatalities, fevers, fish, food, and fig trees. Christ is the absolute master over all physical substance. And He stands before us now in Luke's Gospel and says, follow me. Do not be afraid. Follow me. It will cost you everything. And you will gain true life. You will gain eternal, abundant life. Friend, will you follow? This is Luke's question to you and to me. Can we join in with the saints who have sung, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. 
no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. In our passage this morning, we're going to see four marks of discipleship. If you're taking notes, we'll go through those as we walk through our passage. Four marks of discipleship from Luke chapter 5. And the main point is simply this, behold Jesus. Behold King Jesus. In all of His holiness and power, He exposes our sin and weakness, and yet in the gospel welcomes us. He commissions us as His disciples to join Him in His mission. He uses sinners to be fishers of men. Will you follow Him with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength? This is what it looks like. Four marks of a disciple of Jesus. Mark number one. Mark number one. A disciple listens to Jesus. A disciple listens to Jesus. Notice the way Luke sets up the scene here in verse 1 of chapter 5 again. On this occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. If you remember, Jesus had been ministering in Capernaum and Galilee. In that last section that we've been through, that long Sabbath day, Jesus spent teaching. He was healing the masses. He was casting out demons. And he continued that teaching and preaching ministry throughout the synagogues of Judea there at the end of uh, chapter 4. Here we find him in a familiar place, if you're a regular reader of the Gospels, the Lake of Gennesaret, just another name for the Sea of Galilee. So it's about an 8-mile by 14-mile size body of water, a very popular spot for fishing and very popular place to find Jesus if you're looking for Jesus. And as we go through Luke's gospel, we should, we should keep our eyes on, on this crowd that are, that are coming around Jesus here. We should just observe them, observe the crowd. Uh, here we see them doing something very positive. They're, they're excited to hear the word of God that Jesus is teaching. So excited that they're, they're beginning to press in on him, crowd in on him to the point that he's going to have to get out into the water to teach, to get off the land and into a boat. And so Luke has been focusing our attention on Jesus' authority as a teacher. The, the, the word that he speaks causes demons to flee and, and, and diseases to disappear. He teaches as one with authority. The very words of God are coming from his mouth. And the people were listening to Jesus because that's what disciples do. Disciples listen to Jesus. Look at verse 2. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Okay, so here's the scene. You've got two boats pulled up by the shore, by the lake. The fishermen who have been out all night fishing are, are tired, and they're on the land now uh, cleaning and mending their, their fishing nets. And we know from the rest of the passage that these fishermen are, this is Simon Peter, and we know from other Gospels that, that Andrew, his brother, is with him from Mark, and his partners, James and John of Zebedee, the, the sons of Zebedee, are there. And so apparently they've been fishing all night, and these are, these are men who are fishing with dragnets. Okay, so this isn't like bait fishing with a, with a rod and reel that maybe you and I do out at a lake or, or out on, from, from a boat. 
Um, this is backbreaking work. It involves laying out these great large nets in kind of a semicircle, kind of taking up some hundred feet and then drawing them in hand over hand and then repeating that procedure all over again, all throughout the night. And then at the end of the night, they, they, they bring the boats to shore and they haul these nets to shore and they clean them and they fix any tears that are in them. And we know that Simon and Jesus are already acquaintances at this point. We don't know how, much, how, how close they are, but Simon has seen Jesus teach in the synagogue. And of course, he's likely, he was likely there and saw the, the healing of his mother-in-law where she had this high fever and she was immediately healed by Jesus. But he's a long way from understanding who it is who's actually sitting in his boat right now. But Jesus gets into Simon's boat and asks him to push out a little bit so that he can have some breathing room from the crowd and teach from a distance. And so he is intentionally here calling out Simon to hear his words and then to follow his words. And he does. But it's only a preview of what is coming and what Jesus is going to ask him to do. So pick it up there in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Okay? So imagine you have Jesus on the boat, this floating kind of pulpit. His words are radiating off the water. And the people are hearing and clinging to every word. And at the conclusion of his message, he just turns over to Simon again and asks him to go out a little further and put down his nets for a catch. And I think there's several reasons why this is an incredibly demanding request uh, for, for Simon, to, to, to say it uh, mildly. So, so Simon has been out fishing all night. And I'm sure you know what it's like to go a night without sleep. Uh, he probably hadn't slept all night. He's exhausted. He's ready to go home. And then on top of that, he spent hours just kind of cleaning up and closing up shop, cleaning up and mending his nets. And now Jesus wants them to go back to shore to pick up all those nets and then load them up and then go back out to the deep in the middle of the day, which is the worst time to fish. The normal time to fish would be in the evening and, and go out and, and, and fish. Not to mention that Simon is a professional fisherman. I don't know how you feel when someone maybe comes into your office or, or steps into kind of your line of work and expertise and tells you kind of how to do it. Um, I don't know if that usually goes over well for you. We pick up some doubt, don't we, in Simon Peter as he hears what Jesus says and replies. But we also see that he listens to Jesus and does what he says. So pick it up there in verse uh, 5. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So there is probably a note of condescension in Peter's tone here. Simply put, he just doubts Jesus. He doubts about, he has doubts about doing what Jesus says to do. This seems like a complete waste of time to him. But because it's Jesus, he's willing to give it a try. He refers to him, notice, as master here, which is about like a, like a, like, like, synonymous with the title rabbi or teacher. Peter has seen enough from Jesus to know that he's willing. He's going to be willing to do something that he says. He's willing to do something even 
on the crazy side of what Jesus says. And so at your word, which we've seen this amazing authority and authority and power connected to, at your word, I will let down the nets. And so Peter is taking, just observe, a small step of faith in obeying Jesus here. He has doubts. He's not sure that this is going to pan out. But in faith, he listens to Jesus and acts on his word. Even when it involves something having to do with his own strengths, his own profession, even when the results could be likely very embarrassing for him, even when it's inconvenient and hard. Friends, what a lesson for us to see here right before us, that disciples listen to Jesus. At the most basic level, we need to see that in order to follow Jesus, we must give attention to what He says, to His Word. And so for those of us, for those in this story, that simply means going to find Him wherever He was and listening to Him. Listening to Him teach. Listening to Him preach. For us today, it means taking up our, our Bibles and, and studying and listening with a prayerful view to hearing from Jesus. To, to seeing Jesus in His Word. It means listening to sermons like this one about Jesus. I hope every sermon that you hear um, at this church is about Jesus. Expecting that God will speak through His Word. Paul would say to the Romans, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So in our discipleship, friends, the ear is the most fundamental body part. That we would be hearing and taking in and listening prayerfully, seriously, eagerly to the words of Jesus. But notice that Peter isn't just listening. He does more than listen. He also acts in obedience to Jesus' words. So true disciples don't merely listen, but little by little, bit by bit, in faith, they begin to grow in obedience to the words of Jesus. Even when they're not sure about how it's going to work out when they step out in faith. Even when they're not sure what the result is going to be. Even when they say things like, I've tried that before and it hasn't worked. Or when there's something related to obedience in your own profession. Something that you feel like you have a handle on. That's your territory in life. And God is calling you to steps of obedience there. We trust Him and His words. Whether it's something we think we already know, like fishing for Peter, or something completely new. Friend, are you listening to Jesus like that? Are you making time for His Word in your life? Are you making time for the words of Jesus to, to without being in a hurry, without looking at your watch, carefully, slowly, prayerfully, with your Bible open, reading and meditating, considering the radical words, the comforting words, the gospel words in Scripture? Are you willing to step out in faith and obey those words as it relates to your marriage? As it relates to other areas in your life? As it relates to regularly assembling with the people of God? Luke is building a strong case in his gospel already that you ought to listen to what Jesus says. And maybe that means... For you, just being at church today is, a, is an example of a step of faith that you took to be here. You know that Jesus calls us to assemble together as His people, not to do the Christian life alone. 
And maybe you, you struggle and you had a, a battle about even being here today, but it's a step of faith that you're here. Or maybe you feel that way about your small group later this week or, or coming to a youth gathering. About following Jesus in believers' baptism. About regularly being committed to reading His Word. Maybe it's a big decision that's coming up in your life. Maybe He's calling you to do something that from a worldly perspective makes no sense. Are you listening? That's what disciples do. They listen to Jesus. And we see that here in Luke 5. Secondly, let's look at another mark of discipleship that we see. Number two, if you're taking notes, a disciple admits his sin to Jesus. A disciple admits his sin to Jesus. Jesus is invading Peter's world here. He's gotten into his boat, calling him out specifically to respond to his word in a very challenging way. Before Peter had seen Jesus working from a distance in others, now he's face to face with Jesus and his commands applying to himself. Pick it up in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Go out to the deep, middle of the day, put down your nets, Peter. They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Okay, so here they are, the worst time of day to fish sitting there, and I don't know how it happened, maybe suddenly, maybe incrementally, the boat lunges forward because there's so many fish in the nets that they're beginning to break. They can't hold them. And Peter has calling for help, and James and John come over, and both boats are now trying to lift all these fish into the boats. These boats would have been about seven feet wide and somewhere between 27 and 30 feet long. So this is not a little jet ski this is like a mini barge. It's a, a good-sized boat, okay? We're talking about, I think we're talking about literally tons of fish here. And, 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 and so those who classify these things would classify this as a, a, a nature miracle of Jesus. And there's lots been written. That, did Jesus know where the fish were? And just said, put your nets right where they were. Or did he call all the fish? This is a miracle, right? We can, we can parse the details later. But Jesus clearly shows himself to be in command over nature, in command over all of, of the animal kingdom, showing his authority. Often we say, I just don't have a category for that. I don't have a category in my brain to put that in. But I don't think that's true for Peter and his, and his friends. They know the Old Testament stories. They know the stories of Israel. They particularly know those stories in the Exodus when God calls the frogs and the gnats and flies and locusts, and they come and they obey at His bidding. They come here and not here. Peter realizes and knows and understands that Jesus is revealing Himself. And no matter what the depth of that knowledge is, Peter knows enough that only God could do this. Only God could do this. And as Jesus is revealing himself at the same time, Peter is being undone and exposed. He finds himself in what you could just call moral trauma. Uh, pick it up in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Peter finds himself in a long line of people in the Scriptures who, when confronted with the holiness of God, are immediately, simultaneously, deeply aware of their own unworthiness. People like Isaiah, who said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. People like Job. Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter is confronted with the holiness of Jesus, and he falls before him on his knees and asks him to go away. Why? Why would you ever ask Jesus to go away? It's because Jesus is holy, and Peter understands that he is not. He is a, in his own words, sinful man. Friends, this is something every disciple of Jesus must understand. Every one of us must get that God is holy and we are not. Initially, that news, that truth that God is holy is not good news for sinners. We were created by God. We were created in His image to know Him and love Him and to be in close proximity, close fellowship with Him. But we have sinned and rebelled and turned from Him. Our first parents did it. And we have all followed suit. Every single human being. In the garden, Adam and Eve turned from God's voice. And they were ultimately exiled, separated from God and from His presence. Sin separates us from God because He is holy and we are not. We deserve His judgment. Peter understands the vast difference between himself and Jesus. And he's not just aware of any specific sins. I, yeah, I, I snapped at my wife earlier, but that he is utterly a sinful man. He is shot through completely with sin. And facing Jesus, he knows he deserves judgment. His response is not that different from the demons that we saw that Jesus encountered. Don't destroy us. Get away from us. The difference is this. Jesus hasn't come to destroy us. It's what we deserve, but He hasn't come for that purpose. Everyone who comes to Jesus in the Gospels comes because they know they need His grace, and He extends grace. Never in the Bible do we see Jesus turn away a confessing, repenting sinner. No longer is Jesus addressing Him as Master. Notice here He calls Him 
Lord. He may not know everything there is to know yet about who He is, but He knows only God can do what Jesus did. And He is Lord. Sooner or later, every disciple of Jesus must come to a place of acknowledging, admitting their sin before God and God's holiness, our unworthiness, and come to Him in our repentance. Friend, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you seen Jesus for who He is and yourself for who you are? The wonderful thing about this passage is that Peter isn't actually led away from Jesus. His sin doesn't take him away from Jesus, but toward Jesus. Notice Jesus' response to his confession. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't argue with him about his sinfulness. He doesn't say, Peter, now you shouldn't talk that way. You need to believe in yourself. You need to have more confidence in your abilities. Be more positive. He says instead, don't be afraid. You're right. Don't be afraid. And he calls him to himself to be one of his disciples. So the prerequisite to being a disciple is admitting and repenting of our sin against God. And that leads to a relationship with God through Jesus. There's no shortcut through that. There's no downplaying of our abilities or inability and saying, well, we're not really that bad. We must be honest and completely clear about who we are and who God is. That's how we begin this relationship with Jesus. Knowing Him, walking with Him, and like Peter here, being accepted by Him. Jesus came to bridge the separation that sin has made, taking sin upon Himself. So He came to take the penalty that we deserve, that Peter deserves, that I deserve, which is the wrath of God. We deserve an eternity of an experience of the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I will take that for you. I will be a substitute for you and pay for all of your sin. And then I'll credit you with my righteousness. So he dies on the cross, taking our sin and then rises from the grave, victorious over sin and the devil forever. So that now we can hear the offer of the good news this morning and turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus and hear these same words. Do not be afraid. Come to me, sinner. Come to me. That's what the apostle John heard when he's got this, this vision in Revelation 1 and he comes face to face with Christ. Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. John, I died and rose that you don't have to be afraid anymore. Come to me. Every disciple acknowledges their sin, turns from their sin and turns to Jesus. And Jesus receives repentant sinners. And then he reorients their life and commissions them. That's the next mark of discipleship that we see. Number three, a disciple tells others about Jesus. A disciple tells others about Jesus. Jesus calms Simon's fears 
and then lays out for him a new path, a life of discipleship there in verse 10. Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You have the ESV, you see that note? Men and women, human beings. You're now a fisher of humans. Every, every part of this miracle has significance and meaning. Jesus shows himself to be Lord of creation, the Holy One of God. Peter is undone. He's exposed in his sin. He's unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says, not only am I going to save you and redeem you of your sin and lostness, I'm going to make you a fisher of people. I'm going to commission you and use you for my purposes. This commission, you will be catching men, it implies continuous action. So from now on, you will be catching men, in other words. And so this is a new direction, a new vocation for Peter's life. It takes the verb to catch and joins it with the verb for life. And it means something like you will catch alive men. So it's the opposite of what normal fishermen do, right? This is not our goal. If we're trying to be fishermen, usually, maybe you do, let your fish go. But here, we're not catching fish to eat. Jesus is talking about catching men as a rescue operation from death and judgment to life. Jude describes saving men as snatching them out of the fire, Jude 23. So Jesus is calling Peter and his disciples to a life of evangelism, sharing the gospel, telling others about Jesus, and watching Jesus powerfully work. And, and this miracle is, I think, uh, kind of part one. Part two happens in Acts chapter two. I think it's basically the same thing, isn't it? In Peter's own ministry. He's preaching in Acts chapter two, right? Same author. This is Luke. Luke part one. Acts is part two. He's preaching there at Pentecost. What's he preaching? He's preaching about Jesus. He's calling people to repentance of their sins, trusting in Jesus. He's being a fisher of men. And he hauls in... More people than you could imagine. Acts 2.41, those who received his words were baptized and there were added to that number that day 3,000 souls. That's not a normal day at the office. That's not a normal Sunday at UPBC. And then in Acts 4, the number is already up to 5,000. The nets are breaking. The boat is sinking. Friends, all disciples are called to tell others about Jesus. Disciples of Jesus help others follow Jesus. You can't help someone else follow Jesus if they don't know Jesus. This is normal Christianity, normal discipleship. It's an ordinary part of our discipleship. Certainly there are people in the body of Christ that have a gift for evangelism. That when they talk to someone about Jesus, there's unusual ease or sometimes unusual fruit. But that doesn't mean that we can say, since it's not my gift, or I don't enjoy it, that I can put it off to the side. This is the calling of every single follower of Jesus. You are a fisher of men. I am a fisher of men. And evangelism is very much like fishing. No one goes out knowing exactly what they're going to catch, knowing how the day is going to go. Sometimes you don't catch anything. But there's one guarantee. If you don't fish, you won't catch fish. I've never caught fish in my living room. If we don't go out fishing, we won't catch anything. I I love Magellan shirts. These Magellan shirts that are just kind of light, those are fishing shirts. 
But my friends that are real fishermen know that I'm a poser when I wear those shirts because I don't know the first thing about real fishing. But I got the shirt on. I look like, you see the idea? We're not just wearing the shirt. Christian, we're supposed to be those who are in, our, fit, our fingers should smell like fish. All of us are fishers of men. If you don't cast the net of the gospel, you will not see anyone trust Christ. The results are not what make you a good fisherman. It's your obedience. It's praying that God would cause the gospel to land on the right person and open their hearts to receive it. So we're called to cast a wide net to invite our neighbors to church. If you're looking for an easy time, this next week is the easiest time to invite a neighbor. It's Easter. Even I, when I was growing up, went to church on Easter. Okay? It's an easy time for you to say, hey, we got, we got, we have things going on this week at church. We'd love for you to come. We have a breakfast on Sunday. Join us for our services. We'd love to, to have you to hear the gospel, to hear the good news about Jesus, to speak to your family members about the gospel, to learn about leading an evangelistic Bible study out of your home. We've had some of that happen recently here at UPC, UBBC. Very encouraging. So think about opportunities that you have just in normal conversation to turn conversations in a spiritual direction. You're just, you're just fishing to support the work of the church, to equip and help others to evangelize, to support the work of missions, to get the gospel out to the darkest and deepest parts of the world. Friends, it's not about your method of evangelism. Imagine Peter trying to write a book on fishing from this experience. You need to go out in the middle of the day and put your nets down. No, that's not, that's not the, it's not the method. It's the person in the boat with him. It's relying on Jesus, his guidance, his grace. He brings about any kind of results, any kind of harvest. So lots of methods that are helpful and good, but prayer must be the foundation for all of them. Praying for God to work, for him to move. There's no salvation apart from the power of Jesus. And that's clear in this miracle. And it's true in our own evangelism as well. Friends, I hope you can get excited about this, about being a fisherman for the souls of those that God has placed you around. It's our calling. It's what God's given us. And so we need to pray and be faithful to watch him do the work. Don't be discouraged. Maybe you have that testimony like Peter. I've been doing this all night and haven't seen anything. Keep praying, keep trusting, and keep fishing. Keep telling others about Jesus. It's what disciples do. Number four, last mark we'll see of a disciple. A disciple leaves everything to follow Jesus. Verse 11. The opening scene here of this chapter, it ends, I think, with one of the most powerful sentences in the, in the Bible. You can measure the impact that Jesus has on these men, even though they don't understand everything there is to understand yet by how they respond to him here in verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Peter, James, and John had heard Jesus teach. They had seen him perform miracles. But right here, they are now making an all-in or nothing decision to follow Jesus. They're leaving their old lives behind. 
They left their, their boats, their fishing tackle right there on the shore. Not to mention likely the catch that they had only seen in their dreams flopping around. What else did they leave behind? Well, probably uh, uh, the safety and security that comes with a routine and job that they had, they had known and loved, the way life was, the things that they looked to for meaning and purpose. Essentially, they're leaving behind their right to call their lives their own. This is what disciples of Jesus do. We let go of what it is that we want for our lives so that we can have what Jesus wants for our lives. Beloved, do we understand do we understand this? This this radical call. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6:19, "You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You're not your own." I think Jesus is going to really unpack. So we have a picture of what this looks like here. They leave their boats. They leave everything behind. He's going to unpack it a lot more in chapter 9, isn't he? We'll get there soon. 9, 23 and 24. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I think that's just another way of saying really repenting and believing and following Jesus. We're going to see more about that as we go. But can you imagine the disciples trying to live out their old lives, their old ways as they follow Jesus, carrying those heavy fishnets wherever they went? Maybe just leaving early, you know, at a healing of Jesus to go start fishing so they could be back the next day, but, but skipping out on some sleep. If they had tried to do that, maintain their old way of life, they would have never been able to truly follow Jesus. When we meet Jesus, Jesus, our lives will not stay the same. He demands first priority. There's no negotiating this. It's a complete reorientation. And so, so every Christian lays our life down and says, Jesus, it's yours. And when I was in college, I remember... Uh, a friend of mine, Ross King, who did music at AM at the time, singing this song at one of our events, and it struck me kind of in this way. And it's really, it's really a prayer. And the song, there's a, the chorus goes like this Whatever you ask of me, I know my answer will be yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever you desire, I won't say no. Wherever you call me, I'll gladly go. When we see these realities, I think two things come to our minds. Both are true. One is the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. What is the cost? It's everything. Being willing to say, it is your life. It's your life. It's not my life anymore. And so whatever comes to your mind as you ponder that, likely selfish ambitions, sinful pleasures, comfortable surroundings, precious idols, the right to live how you want to live, you setting the agenda for your life. That's the, that's the cost, and it's a real cost. But the other side of the coin is that we are leaving something that we see as good, normal, for something infinitely better. We're giving up something to get something better. And this is the joy of discipleship. So you have the cost of discipleship, in the joy of discipleship. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He's motivated by joy. It's joy that sends people to the 1040 window and sustains them there in an unreached people group. Not obligation, not paying off a debt to God. It's joy that strengthens people to to sacrifice everything for others in their family. To forgo their own wants for the good of others. A deeper, greater joy. And the disciples are following Jesus here, not out of self-discipline, but because they see who He is and understand He's absolutely irresistible. He's irresistible. Is that the Jesus that you know and follow? Irresistible? Doesn't mean He calls everybody to vocational ministry. He calls you to a vocational calling. Or you're saying, this is my life. It is lived for you. You decide, Jesus. He calls. We say yes. Whether we're a fisherman or a banker or a lawyer or a mom or we're called to singleness or to marriage, we're a student, we're a pastor, missionary, praying about being a missionary, professor, bus driver, waiter, cook, construction worker. He is our king. Everything else is loose in our hands because we're holding tight to Jesus. They leave everything and follow Him. They leave everything for Him because that's what disciples do. It's who disciples are. They listen to Jesus. They acknowledge and turn from their own sin. They trust in Him alone. They tell others about Him and they leave everything for Him. They give Him priority. They lose their lives and find true life in Him. Now, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of discipleship for Peter and for his little his crew. They're beginning to, to understand this, but it's far from the end. Peter is going to absolutely blow it. He is going to wreck the whole thing in his mind, big time. He's going to deny any association with Jesus. You ever been in a place where you just think, I've blown the whole thing? And then after the resurrection, Peter is going to be in anguish. And at the end of John's gospel, one of my most, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, he actually goes back to fishing. And he and his friends are fishing all night. And guess what they caught? Nothing. They caught nothing. And early in the morning, There's Jesus, resurrected, glorified Jesus, standing on the shore, looking out to them. But they don't recognize Him. And so He calls out to them, asking, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and there you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of a fish. And John just records when Simon Peter saw it, he said, it is the Lord. It's the Lord. And he throws off his tunic, jumps in the water and goes to Jesus as a sinner, as someone who's blown it. 
And then for every time that Peter had denied him, Jesus commissions him again and says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Be a fisher of men. Don't be afraid. The more we know, friends, of Jesus, the more we will learn of our sin, but the more we'll we'll learn of his grace. The more we'll learn of the towering figure that Jesus Christ is. And the more we'll come to him for forgiveness and grace and love and acceptance. Because he loves us and forgives us and cares for us. He gives us life. He puts our broken lives back together and he will do this for you. Do you see him? Would you run to him and say, no turning back. I'm going to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us especially as we seek to, Lord, just take a fresh look at your word and then at our own lives. And we pray that any sin that so easily entangles us would just be clear to us. It would be clear, like we're trying to follow you and things are holding us back, whatever that may be. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and give us a heart that's quick to repent and to submit to you, our King. Lord, whatever this looks like for us, we pray by your Spirit you would make application for each heart in this room. For each situation, Lord, that have countless hours and years behind them in thinking through and ups and downs, Lord, to know that you're aware of every single second and working and molding and guiding things to your glory. We pray that you would be near to us. We pray that you would call some today. You would catch some alive even today. And they would follow you. We rejoice, Lord, in the gospel. We love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.